Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1. We're going to read the first uh, 10 verses, and then we'll, we'll get through the rest of the chapter as we go on through the night. Um, but uh, yeah, we'll just read the first 10, and then we'll pray. It says this, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, and today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Those of you that don't know who Melchizedek is, just wait. Some of you guys are tripping out. In in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who is able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Let's bow your heads. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, um, I pray for your Holy Spirit to anoint this place. God, your word is already blessed. Your word is already active. Your word is already anointed, Lord. I pray, God, um, not for the word, but rather for our hearing of it for our hearts to receive it, um, Lord, for our minds to be challenged, Lord, for uh, any preconceived notions, any pride to be shattered. I pray, Lord, that we today, we, we tonight here, um, we would be able to come face to face with you and choose you rather than our idols. Um, please, Lord, work in my heart, work in our hearts, Lord, that we would learn something from you in your word tonight. I pray that every single person in here would, be, would feel profoundly loved by you, um, God, and that through your word, Lord, that we would get um, absolute clarity. So, Father, help us um, anoint this time, and we love you and we praise you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen, 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 amen. So, guys, so we, we learned last week, guys, we learned last week how to chill out, right? That's, that's basically, that, that was the entire just that was the entire theme of last week was just chilling out with God. It was about taking a Sabbath, right? And we learned how we as Americans, it's like our number one sin is not taking a Sabbath. One of our number one sins is, is, being, uh, is being overworked. Because the second someone asks you how you're doing, the first thing you say is what? Busy, right? The first thing you say is busy. I'm tired. And, and that's not necessarily because we're busy and tired, but it's mostly because we want to sound important, right? It's mostly because we want to sound like something's happening in our lives, right? Like people need me, right? I'm a responsible person. So I'm busy. I'm tired. And for some of us, we've been consumed with so much busyness that it has caused us when in stressful times to rely on our own strength instead of the Lord's. When we're surrounded by busy circumstances, when we're surrounded by tons of fires that we need to put out constantly, what it causes us to do is to only look at our circumstances and then only look at our own strength as a means to uh, get out of those circumstances. And what taking a Sabbath does, it reorients ourselves to pay attention to God and put things in his hand. Taking a day off of work where you don't do homework and when you don't do work, taking that day proves to you not to God, but it proves to you that your work doesn't have power over you. God does, right? That, that you, do not, you do not identify yourself based off what you do, but on what Christ has done for you. And taking a day, guys, and, it, and it's really, really hard. And guys, I'm, I'm going to confess to you, I, I am one of the worst at this. As I said last week, I'm one of the worst at this. And I'll tell you why. I'll, I'll give you an example is that Saturday is supposed to be my Sabbath. And there was a couple hours in that day where I worked. Right? And I, I just can't seem to get away from it. Right? And so I, I want to encourage you continually because the author of Hebrews in chapter 4, he warns us. He says, not entering into God's presence is one of the main ways we fall into sin. 
not entering into his rest, not taking a day of Sabbath is, is one of the ways that we fall into sin because we're so focused on anxiety and circumstance and we act out of that. And so taking one 24-hour day where you, it, it's not like you're doing nothing, but you're taking a day to meditate on the Lord. You're taking a day to do something that you enjoy, to enjoy the fruit of your labor. And taking a day to just relax and chill out and say, God has this, right? It's incredibly important for your spiritual walk. And it's a way for God to care for your soul. It's a way for God to get you sitting still and to talk to you, right? Because it it says that God speaks in a still, small voice, and we often live in a world that is constantly moving and always loud, right? So taking a Sabbath is a way for us to stop so we can hear the still voice and to not be surrounded by noise so we can hear it because it's quiet. It's a way for us to meditate on that and allow Christ to minister to our souls and to refresh us so that we can rely on the strength of the Lord and his grace throughout the rest of the week so that we can work even harder. As Paul said, he said, I got to work harder than every other apostle. He even, he bragged about that. He said, I've worked harder and I've done more than every other apostle by the grace of the Lord. So taking a Sabbath, taking a day is a way for us to rest and to us to sit in the grace of the Lord. And it's incredibly important that we allow ourselves to be ministered to by the high priest, Jesus, because he cares for our souls. And we see this here in Hebrews chapter five. And he, he describes Jesus, the pastor of Hebrews. And I, I say pastor because I think of this as the book of Hebrews, less as an epistle, as you would see in the book of Ephesians or Galatians, and more as a sermon that's being preached. It's one continual theme throughout. And it, it's a sermon and he's saying, For every high priest chosen among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. He's describing Jesus as a priest. And it's a weird word, huh? Priest is a weird word because there's, there's, there's things that come in our head. There's, there's images that pop into our head when we think of priest. Because when I say priest, some of you with Catholic backgrounds might think an old guy in a white robe that makes you sit down, then Stand up, then sit down, then stand up, then sit down, then stand up again, right? For those of you that grew up Catholic, you know exactly what I'm saying, what I'm saying right? This is constantly sitting up, sitting down, sitting up, sitting down, sitting up, sitting down. And a, and a man in a white robe, you know, speaking Latin, and, and you guys have no idea what he's saying because you're six, right? <laughs> right? And, and you have no idea. So some of you that have these, these Catholic backgrounds, that's kind of the picture that you get. For some of you, you only have a Hollywood version of a priest, right? So you only have the daredevil version of what a priest is, right? When you get, for those of you that watch Daredevil, or some of you are a Walking Dead fans, right? You only have that image of a priest quoting scripture as he's chopping off zombies' heads, right? And, and so some of you only have that kind, you have the Hollywood version of a priest, right? This, this man where you walk into this empty church and it's always empty. It's always empty and he's just sitting there in the pews, right? And, and just ready to spit out wisdom to whoever happens to walk in. That's a Hollywood priest. So some of you, you might have that image in your heads, but that's not exactly what we're talking about here. When the author of Hebrews is mentioning priests, how Jesus is a high priest, um, he's talking about the priests that were established in the Old Testament. And the priests were established and they, they were to offer sacrifices to God on behalf of the people. That was their job. Pastor Mark has often said that the priests, they were constantly coming in and out of the front of uh, of the synagogues or of the, of the temple, right? Uh, to offer sacrifices to God. So people would bring their sacrifice. They would take the sacrifice. They put it on the altar. They'd spill its blood. Then they'd go and they'd run. They'd take someone else's sacrifice. And they were just doing this back and forth all day. Said that there was rivers of blood coming out of the temple of Jerusalem, right? Because there's just so much blood, so many sacrifices being made. And people from all tribes of Israel would come and they'd bring offerings to the priest, to offer sacrifices. And essentially, guys, a priest's job was to bring people to God. They worked as some sort of mediator as far as sacrifices were concerned. They, they, they brought people to God and people would bring sacrifices to atone for their sins or to simply worship him, right? And it wasn't always a, a, a bloody, gory, goat's slitting their throat, sacrifice, right? It wasn't always that, but sometimes they bring fruits and grains and, and different offerings just to simply 
worship the Lord and say, do you know what? Here are my resources, right? And I'm going to offer them up to God as a symbol of trust and worship in him. And, and, and we kind of, we, we, we hear that, guys, and it's kind of weird in our heads, right? Um, just killing goats all day, right? Like killing sheep all day. That sounds, it, it, at least to me, guys, um, it, it begs the question, why would God choose animals? Like, why, does God have something against animals? Does God have something against goats, right? Is God just so bloodthirsty that he requires us to constantly make these almost pagan-like sacrifices, right? It, it, it seems weird to me, right? I don't know about you. And we talked also last week, stop pretending like the Bible isn't weird, right? It's totally weird. It's totally weird. And we're allowed to say it is. It, it, it sounds weird. But the point, guys, the point was to ingrain in people this sense of how intense their sins were. To ingrain in their hearts the intensity of their sins, the ugly, gory mess of the sacrifices was meant to paint a picture of their sins that brought death, not only to themselves, but to the people around them. It was meant, it was meant to signify this, this super gory mess, this intensity that came with our, with, with our sins. It's an image, and the sacrifice would ultimately foreshadow the sacrifice that Christ would make on the cross. So every sheep that they would bring to the altar, every goat, every pigeon, whatever it might have been was but an image, a foreshadowing of the sacrifice. There's no cross here anymore. I don't know what Pastor Mark's going to do, especially when he does this all the time. But, but th- there's no cross up there. But pretend there is, right? When I'm pointing over here, that, that when Christ made a sacrifice on the cross, that, that's a foreshadowing. It's a foreshadowing, guys. Uh, 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 all these sacrifices. And he says this, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. To offer gifts and sacrifices for sins, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron. So the priest would do these sacrifices for themselves too, right? So, so it, it, it wasn't just them looking at all of these things, right? If I were to come to a priest or you were to come to me, if I was a priest and me just looking at you, really again, right? Again, you were just here like three hours ago and you already sinned again, right? All right. So, and the priest wasn't looking at these people with judgmental eyes because for the sins he too would commit, he would have to offer sacrifices for himself. The priest was not exempt from offering sacrifices. The people came to the priest with their issues. And the priest generally showed a whole lot of compassion because they also they also understand how gory and how messy their sins are as well. And that's a job of a priest, ultimately. And, and the author of Hebrews is trying to get into a theme underneath um, the, the, the point of sacrifices and the point of the priesthood. It's, the point of the priesthood is to relate to the people and to also foreshadow the way that Jesus would also relate to us, the way that he would also bring our sins to God and do away with them the way that he would listen compassionately and take on our sins compassionately. And what's really cool is that in Exodus chapter 28, verses 4 through 33, you don't have to go to it. I'll paraphrase for you. But essentially, the priests were told that they had to, have a, they had to wear a breastplate. The high priest had to wear this breastplate on his chest. And essentially, what that breastplate would do is that it would have 12 stones engraved on them the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. The 12 tribes of Israel encompassed all of Israel, all the people that were making sacrifices. The high priest would have um, the names written on his chest when he's making these bloody sacrifices, when he's bringing um, the sins of the people to God, essentially, to atone for them. And on, their, on the shoulder straps was ingrained, ingrained all the names as well. So on the high priest's shoulders and on his chest, near his heart and on his back were the names of all of the 12 tribes of Israel. And in this, the people of Israel were always, guys, always on the hearts and on the shoulders of the priest. Meaning that he would literally wear compassion for them. 
He would always have them in mind when he would go and make these sacrifices. Continually looking at their names, continually knowing it's on his shoulders. It's his responsibility to care for these people. And ultimately, that's, the, that's kind of the parallel we're drawing with Christ here. This is the image of Christ that while he sacrificed himself, he wore the sins of the people on, of, on his shoulders. This is a symbol of the high priest Jesus. Every time we sin, Jesus takes on that sin. He wears them. He contemplates them. He knows your sins. He understands them. And, and, and on the cross, he, he lays them down. And he makes that sacrifice to God with his own blood. Always filled with compassion and having you on his heart. And I, I, I love the idea that when Jesus hung on that cross and when he was taking the punishment that I deserved, he was thinking of every single one of us. Taking on those sins, having our sins in mind, on, our, on his heart and on his shoulders, he bore our names, our filthy names, so that he might give us a better one, a new identity. He says this in verse 5. Everyone go to verse 5. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son and today I have begotten you. Christ endured separation from God so that we might not have to. He said, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Christ being this great high priest guy, sacrificed himself. And and it says for joy set before him, he endured the cross. That's what we're going to learn later in Hebrews. It was a joyful act for him, but in his humanity, there was this real fear of not only the physical pain, but the emotional, spiritual, and eternal connection being severed by him and God. There's that real feeling there. There's that real separation he had to endure. And he, he endured separation so that we might gain unity. When Jesus was separated, we were united with God. Whatever separation we gain from running away from God, Christ had taken upon his shoulders just as the high priest in the temple would take upon our, the people's sacrifices and lay them at God's feet on the altar. This is the image of God as a high priest. This is the image of Christ as our high priest. He's our mediator. He's our mediator. He is the true priest. And that's, that's why we don't sacrifice animals anymore. That's why every time you sin, you don't have to bring a goat to the church and Pastor Mark, Brett, or Rob, we just slit it in front of everybody, right? That's why you don't have to deal with that gory mess anymore because the gory mess of Christ on the cross was the final representation of our sin being dealt with forever. And it's an amazing picture. And it's an amazing thing Christ did on the cross. And in that, he becomes our continual priest, always offering sacrifice to us, always offering intercession on our behalf, continually being our high priest and guiding us with compassion because as we learned last week, he understands our weakness. He has identified with it. He understands it. He knows our weakness. He knows what it's like and he has warned them himself. So when you pray to God, guys, Don't think that he's this disappointed, um, far-off father that's just shaking his head at you. Don't think when you you do something wrong and and you're looking up to God like he has his arms crossed and he's just like, I guess I'll forgive you, but I'm really disappointed in you. I don't want you ever to think that because he, he is a God who has come down here particularly to associate with you to know exactly what you feel, to understand exactly what you were thinking when you made that sin, to understand the exact temptation that occurred. So when you offer up forgiveness to God, he's not like, I guess I'll let you in. I guess I have to, I promised, right? But he's saying, I know exactly what your struggles are. 
and I forgive you, knowing full well and already paying full price for whatever separation you have endured. So, so Christ bridges that gap for us as our high priest. And it says right here that you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Some of you might know who Melchizedek are, uh, who, who Melchizedek is, and the rest of you maybe have no clue, right? Absolutely no clue. And, and, and Melchizedek is, is mentioned a lot in Hebrews. Um, and the author of Hebrew wants to tell you who he is. And I want to tell you who he is, but I'm not going to. And neither is the author of Hebrews. And he does that for a very specific reason. I'm not going to tell you who Melchizedek is, even though he's at a very, very important figure in Scripture. And, and the author of Hebrews knows he wants to tell you about who Melchizedek is because he is the first priest. But he's not going to tell you. And we learn why in verse 11. So everyone go to verse 11. If you close your Bibles, don't close your Bibles. Keep them open. The author of Hebrews says this in verses 11 through 14. He says, about this, we have much to say. He's like, I want to tell you a lot about Melchizedek. Oh man, do I want to talk to you about him. And it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So the author of Hebrews, guys, pastor, the pastor of Hebrews here, he's calling us out. He's calling us out here. He's saying, listen, I really want to have a deep discussion with you about the priesthood of Jesus. But I can't. I can't. Because you guys are biblically illiterate. And, and, and that's a charge against me too. Right? Because guess what? I had no clue who, Mel- who Melchizedek was until I actually read through Hebrews. And he's like, yeah, I want to tell you about Melchizedek, but I can't because you don't know your Bible. And I'm like, shoot, I don't. (laughs) And I had to to go in and study about Melchizedek myself. And that's what he's saying here. He's He's saying that you have robbed yourselves of knowing the deep truths of God because you've saturated yourself in Snapchat theology. Right? You've saturated yourself in super quick sound bites, memes, and clips from BuzzFeed right? We've surrounded ourselves by these things. We've completely saturated ourselves in quick learning. We can Google everything. And and my charge to you guys is not to simply Google Melchizedek. Because that's the temptation, huh? The author of Hebrews is trying to make a point here. He's saying there's so much more you are capable of. And he's saying in this passage, he's saying, for some of you, the amount of time you've been a Christian, you should be teaching this stuff by now. But you're not. You still need a pastor to spoon feed you everything. You still need a bottle. And and, and for a pastor or a teacher or a podcast to just hook you up and to give you your milk. He says, you can't handle solid food. You can't cut your own meat. And he's calling me out too. He's totally calling me out because he's saying, there's so much more for you, but you refuse to eat solid food because milk is easy to eat. Quick 20-minute devotions in whatever devotion book you have is really easy. But getting into the depths of the priesthood and the lineage of Christ And to see where the promise of Abraham actually originated from. To see these things, right? It takes a little bit more work, doesn't it? Now I'll tell you this. A nice nice steak is far better than like, I don't know, Pediasure, isn't it? Or soy milk, right? Nice steak with mashed potatoes and cooked green beans. It's just amazing, right? 
And a, we, 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 a solid food is so much better, but it's really quick and easy to go to Taco Bell, right? It's really quick and easy to go to Taco Bell, right? Just inject yourself with those beans and meat. Just put it right through there, right? Jesus, uh, Jesus is trying to tell us something because, guys, our satisfaction. Because get, let, me, let me pull back a little bit. There is nothing. There's no amount of furthering your knowledge in the depths of Scripture that could ever release you. There's no lack of knowledge that can release you from the grips of the grace of God. So he's not saying here, yeah, you guys, if you don't study more, you're going to lose your salvation, right? Because there's some, there's some people that I know, the second a trial hits, like, and I'll be sitting right next to them, and it'll be me and somebody else and someone right here just really pouring forth the trial that they're going through in their lives. And, and I'm just listening, and um, this particular person, it's one person in my life where, you know, we'll, we'll be talking or something, and their immediate reaction is, uh, you've been reading your Bible lately? You've been reading your Bible? They're like, my... My, my mother's been diagnosed with cancer. You've been reading your Bible. You've been reading your script. I'm like, God, stop being so insane. It's, the Bible isn't this, this thing that solves all your problems. And it's not going to be something that, it, it, it's not going to be something that you can apply as a bandaid to things. That's not what I'm saying. And I'm not saying that if you don't know who Melchizedek is, you're not saved. Does that make sense? I'm not saying that because, because our salvation is held by Jesus. And your knowledge of the gospel and what Jesus Christ has done for you is sufficient to save you. However, however, your ability to experience satisfaction and fruitfulness in your salvation is contingent on your knowledge of Christ. So where you may be saved, you may not be satisfied. You, you may have grown up in church, but you may not really know what it feels like to sit in the presence of God and have a conversation with them as someone you know. Someone you've grown up hearing about, but you don't know him. Someone you watch on the screen or you listen to on Sundays, but you don't, you don't know him. Our satisfaction as believers and our fruitfulness as believers is dependent on our knowledge of the depths of who Christ is. Some of us are so insecure in our faith because we're ignorant of what our faith actually is. And this is hard because some of us, we've grown up so heavily in the church, guys, that Jesus was a part of our lives just as like soccer practice and Saturday morning cartoons was. Does that make sense? He's a part of our childhood. So, so we, we think of him on the same terms as we did our sports or, um, you know, our favorite cartoon or our playdates with our friends. We, we, we kind of have grown up with that same orientation of our minds where he is a part of our life, but he's not necessarily our life. Giving your life to Christ is an identity thing. It is a matter of identity. If you are a Christian, it is who you are. Jesus isn't a part of your life. He is your life. He is not an aspect or a fraction of your life. He is, he is the vine from which all life flows. So he is not a day in your week. He is the one who dictates all action and all attitudes throughout the week. He is not at the top or at second on your priority list. He creates the priority list. Romans 10, 17 says that faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God, from the word of Christ. So what kind of faith do we have, Christians, if we have not sat in the word of God? If faith comes from this, and faith is what saves us, what kind of faith do we have? And what kind of faith are we operating in? Because I know, guys, for, for me at least, it, for me, 
a lack of knowledge in this will, will, will create all sorts of sin and doubt and allow for the enemy to cause all sort of dissension and cognitive dissonance in my life. That's what happens to me at least. And it's what happened to Eve and Adam in the garden. In Genesis, Eve is in the garden and the serpent comes up to him. Once again, the Bible's weird, right? Serpent comes up and says, has God really said you shall not eat every tree in the garden? Didn't God just say you can't have anything? The enemy comes up to Eve and he says, did God really say you can't have anything here? Did God really say you can't eat any fruit that you want? And what, 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 what Satan is doing, knowing that Eve has not saturated herself in the commands of God, what Satan is doing, he's saying, pretty sure God wants to ruin your fun, right? Pretty sure God wants to be this gigantic buzzkill in your life. Did God really say you can't have all of these things that you want? And so for Eve, there's this, there's this crisis that happens. And she's like, well, you know, God, uh, he said that we can't eat and we can't touch things, right? And so, so Eve's trying to, just, is trying to wrap her head around what the commandments really were. And at that second, Satan had her. He had her. He said, God really say you can't have what you want? But what did God really say? He said to Adam and Eve, everything I have created is yours. He literally says this. He says, everything is yours. Literally everything. But if you don't want me, if you, if you just the only thing, if you're not agreeing to this, don't eat that fruit. That's it. That's the one thing. I've created a whole world for you. Like literally a whole world right? Just billions and billions, like just acres upon acres, right? It's all yours. Every, everything. That's what God said originally. He says, I want to bless you abundantly with everything I have created. Just don't eat this one thing, right? And, and, and then Satan comes up and he's like, did God really say you can't have anything? And Eve immediately, because she hadn't really contemplated the blessings that God wanted to offer her, is now experienced doubt and opening herself up for disobedience and sin. The same thing happens to us. The same exact thing happens to us. Did God really say sex is bad? Did God, didn't God say that he hates gay people? Doesn't God say that you have to be this political party? Right? And and we buy into it, don't we? We buy into it. Do you know why? We have no idea what this actually says. Because here's the thing. The world is going to spit all sorts of accusations about Christians and about the Bible and about God and about what the, about, about all the preachers that say this. And, and it, it, you are going to be bombarded by the media with all of these things that are making claims about this. And you're going to come in contact with classmates that say, well, didn't God say in this obscure verse and right here and only this one little word, didn't God say that he hates this and that he doesn't want you to have fun here and do this? God didn't say any of those those things. But since we have no idea what he actually says, we have no choice but to be like, I, I, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't think so. Right. And I, I am caught in that trap constantly when I'm talking to people They're like, well, um, I, I saw in this one passage of scripture, didn't God say this and this? And since I haven't read it, I have no defense against them. I have no defense. And I'm caught in the same trap Eve was caught on. Guys, with knowledge comes freedom. God doesn't say any of these things, yet there are lies that will be continually fed with our culture. If we don't have a firm foundation what God actually says, it's going to cause us to question his character, Right? Because people are going to be making truth claims about God's character all the time. He doesn't want this for you. 
God hates these types of people. God's a racist. God's a misogynist. All of these things that are being tossed around in our culture, in, in reality, none of it is true, but who are we to argue with them? We have no idea who he is because we haven't sat down with him and learned about who he is. If I don't know somebody, just let's bring this in a really practical level. If I don't know anybody, if I don't know someone personally, whatever claim you come and make to me may or may not be true. Right? If I don't, if I don't know you personally and someone else comes to me and says, hey, so-and-so, you know, uh, you know that they, you know, they're racist, right? I'd be like, I, 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 I didn't know that about them. Because that's the only truth claim that's coming towards me, right? I have nothing to combat that. I, I, I've never interacted with them. They've never told me about themselves. I've never taken time to know anything about them. So whatever truth claims comes up, I have to take that. That's the only thing I got. And it's the same with God, where people are going to constantly be coming up to you and telling you truth claims about God. And if you have not sat with him, if you're not taking time to learn about his character, you have no options. Think about that really quick. Uh, I want you to think about this and how God has chosen to let you know who he is. That's so cool. That is so cool. The God of the universe, the creator, has refused to let himself be a mystery to you and rather wants to let you in on this, this, this crazy rescue mission of humanity. And he wants to fill you in. And in order to really give you the context, he's given you the whole Old Testament. Look at all the imagery I've put in the Old Testament. Look at what I've done in these people's lives, even though they're sinners, right? Look at the intricate things that I've put in here and look at this cosmic rescue mission that is all lined up to Jesus. And then not only that, but after the rescue mission has occurred and after Jesus has had us, he's walking with us and how to live and how to be free. And so God has decided to invite us into his will, to invite us into his character. Psalm 8 verse 3 says, when I consider your heavens the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? He said, when I look at the vastness of this universe and guys with, with modern science and astronomy and, 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 and physics and what we're able to discover about the universe, that, does, that, that in no way negates God's, that, that in no way disproves God. It, it, it shows us the beauty of him. And when I look at all this and when I learn about this, I I learn about just how vast our God truly is. And what the psalmist says here, he's like, "If, if the universe is this enormous, then what am I? Who am I that you would even think about me? A lot of us, I'm so sick of hearing this. God works in mysterious ways. That's total baloney. It's not true. God works in mysterious ways. It's our way of just saying, there might be a reason, but I'm too lazy to look into it. God works in mysterious ways. He doesn't. He's laid it out here. He tells us his character. He tells us how he works. He tells us how he operates. He doesn't work in mysterious ways. In fact, in Ephesians chapter one, verses eight, he says, he made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. God actually says, listen, because it pleases me, I'm actually going to make sure I'm not a mystery to you. I'm going to reveal myself to you. I'm going to show you my character. It's all here. It's all here. And if we don't abide in God's word, truth becomes something that isn't absolute. It is a floating vapor that has no weight on our hearts or on society. It's, it's this enigma. The author of Hebrews scolds us a little bit, doesn't he? At least I can feel him kind of slapping my wrist a bit. 
Because I, as a pastor, fall so short, if I'm being transparent with you, fall so short. I refuse to go deeper because I really, really, really want to watch the next episode of Modern Family. Being real, right? It is much easier to watch two episodes, two reruns of The Office that I've already seen three times than to be acquainted with the creator of the universe. Maybe that's not your weakness, but it's mine. He says, you guys should be teaching this by now. For those of you that have been in the church, maybe since you were like a little kid, you guys should be teaching by now. Those of you, maybe you should be teaching a small group at Young Life or on InterVarsity by now. Be involved in one of our quads, discipling people that haven't heard the gospel yet. You guys should be in kids' ministry, watching over the little kids teaching them about the truths of the gospel. You should be having conversations with your friends about the things that you've learned that week and what God has been showing you. You should be with your significant other saying, I can't, God is showing me so much right now. Can I share this with you? This is what we should be. We should be teaching this by now. And the author of Hebrews is saying, what are you doing? You're settling for milk when there's this awesome food available for you. It's not, it's not something that he's trying to guilt us into. He's saying, you have no idea the amazing things that are in store for you. It's amazing. He's saying, you need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. He's saying your ability to distinguish what is good and what is not good is dependent on how much you know the word. Otherwise, guys, for me at least, otherwise, if, if I'm not in this, my concept of good, like right and wrong comes straight from here. Like the gut, right? And, and I'm probably a worse person than you are, but I should never just trust my gut feeling usually, right? If I'm not solid in the word and I'm not saturated in it, and if I'm not sitting in it constantly, allowing it to dictate uh, my, my, my concept of right and wrong, I am just totally winging it. Winging everything. Winging the way I interact with my friends, the way I interact with my wife, the way I treat people at my job, the way I interact at school. I am totally, totally just winging it. And so what the author of Hebrews, he's saying, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good and bad. It takes practice. It takes this practice in the word of God. It doesn't just come overnight. It it's something that is supposed to be fostered and supposed to be growed inside of us. And to bring this home, because this might be heavy and this might be convicting, or it might be like, stop yelling at me. I feel attacked right now. There was no trigger warning before this, right? Some of you are feeling that right now. I understand. It's probably the Holy Spirit just being like, hey, I'm still here. Like, we haven't talked in a while. Uh, and just nudging you a little bit. Sorry if I'm intruding, right? Safe space, I know. Um, but, 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 but what I want you guys to understand, it's just maybe bring it home in a little more personal level for you guys, at least for me, um, is that I love, I, I am in a loving covenant relationship with my wife. I've, sh- I've stricken covenant with her. I promised myself to her. She's promised herself to me. And as a result of that, I endeavor to know more about her. And she wants to know more about me. We talk to each other. We learn about each other. We share with one another to know more about each other. And, and, and listen, Scripture describes us as Christ's bride. And he our groom. We have entered in, if you, are, if you are a Christian in here, you have entered into a loving covenant relationship. And what covenant means, it's a promised relationship. We have promised yourselves to one another. You have promised yourself to God as a, 
wife does to her husband or a husband does to his wife. And how terrible of a marriage would I have if I only talked to her on Sundays? How brutal of a marriage it would be where she could be totally, totally upset or she could have these dreams and these desires and I would never know about it because we talk to each other during worship on a Sunday night. And that's, the, that's all we get. And, and that's, once again, that's not meant to guilt you. That's meant to, to bring this home to you that we're in this covenant relationship with Jesus and, and he knows so much about you. But what comes with a loving relationship is not only this desire to know someone, but this desire to be known by someone. That's why we post all this stuff into the ether of the internet. We want to be known by people. We want to be somehow known. We want people to know who we are. We want people to see this life that we have. And it's ingrained in us because deep down in our human nature, the way God has designed us is this desire to be known by someone. This desire to be known by God. And do you know what? That's because we're made in the image of God and he desires to be known by you. Stop thinking of God as this disappointed, angry father in the sky who just wants to go to your room, read your Bible. But think of him more as what we see all throughout the prophets, especially in Hosea and Isaiah and Jeremiah. We see more this picture of God weeping as a husband whose wife has abandoned him. Think of it more that way. Less this God just ready to whip you with his belt and more a God saying, I have poured all myself into my bride and she continually runs away from me. God wants to be known by us. And we want to be known by God and we may not know it yet, but I promise you, you take time into this, you will discover more and more about yourself and about God and this relationship will build. The more I talk to Megan, the more not only I discover about her, but I discover about my own desires and my own life. That's the relationship we ought to have with Christ. And I'll close with um, part of Psalm 119 as the worship band orients themselves and gets up. Psalm 119 verse 9, and, and, and guys, if you ever feel yourselves just like drifting away, like, man, I'm really not um, doing well, like getting in the word and really not wanting it. Um, some advice that actually Wilson gave me when I was super young and just just feeling the, the aches and pains of teaching but not getting something in the word is, if you ever need to reorient yourself and fall in love with scripture again, go to Psalm 119. Go to Psalm 119 because you could tell just how much this person loves, loves the word of God. He says in Psalm 119 verse 9, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you. Teach me your statutes. With my lips, I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I I will delight in your word and I will not forget your word. We see in the author here this delight in the word of God. It is not this obligation that we have It is this delight that we enter into. And so I I want us to, if, if life really truly is about fixing our eyes upon Jesus and having him be the center of our lives, let us endeavor to know more about his character. Because I'll tell you what, the story of Melchizedek is really cool. And the way it relates to God's promises towards his people thousands and thousands of years before Christ was even born. It's a really sweet thing, the way God has kept his promises to his people all throughout history. And that's something God wants you to know about. There's a lot of things he wants you to know about himself. 
And there's a lot of things that um, you'll truly delight in once it happens. And once again, I, I'm sorry if this, this felt like I was guilt-tripping you into reading your Bible more. On the contrary, I, I want it to be more of this, um, your husband misses you. And sometimes it takes someone else to remind you of that. Um, as, as we said last week, I, I always feel this, this, this pressing thing that Christ has put on my heart where he's saying, I'm really, really proud of you and how hard you work. I'm really proud of you, but I miss you a lot. So stop working and, and come over here and be with me. So I really encourage you guys to, to, to form habits in your lives, of soaking in God's word. And if you need help in that, um, us pastors are here to help you in that. So if you don't even know where to start, if you haven't read your Bible regularly and forever, please don't feel ashamed to come up to me and ask me because that is my greatest joy to get you started in that. And I, I, I will personally get you a Bible and get you started. I will text you and remind you. I'll do anything it takes for you to just soak in the word of God and be transformed by it. It's not just a history book. It's a book that changes your life because it, it acquaints us with the character of our creator. So we're going to pray and we're going to worship and we're going to use this time to draw closer to the Lord. So Lord, we, we praise you for this time and we want to orient ourselves towards you, Jesus. Thank you, God, that you, you died on the cross and you made uh, it available for us to know you. Lord, if, if it were not for your sacrifice, there would be no Holy Spirit. And with no Holy Spirit, we wouldn't even be able to interpret these words, Lord. So we thank you for your sacrifice. And we take communion tonight to remember that, that it was by your sacrifice that we're even able to enter into fellowship with you. So Lord, as we partake in the bread and the juice and representation of your body that was broken and your blood that was shed, I pray, Lord, that we would be able to Fix our eyes on this concept that uh, you have made a way for yourself to be known, and may we just simply walk in that. As you say that your word is a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. So Lord, may we, uh, may we place your word ahead of us, and, and, and may we walk the path, allowing your words and your truth to illuminate the path forward. So Father, help us in that. For those of us that are new to that and maybe not Christian yet and we have no idea what the heck I'm saying, Lord, I pray for your Holy Spirit to come and to give us understanding and to give us bravery to ask questions and to um, press forward, to not feel shame to come and say, I have no idea what I'm doing because that's most of us. That's all of us. We have no idea what we're doing. So help us in that, Lord. Um, help us to continue and worship you in this time. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.